The first uh, reading comes from Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the second reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy temple and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you. Good to see your faces. Yes, not having to wear masks. It's beautiful. Uh, I'm looking forward to opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, actually, there is an outline you would have received on the way in. It has a few points, four points. And also, 
The first part of the Bible we're going to look at today is actually in Colossians. So if you had your Bible open then, just flick back to Colossians 1 and we'll get to that. Uh, but I'm wondering, how do you feel about the word should? Should. I should be spending time with friends and family. I should be exercising 30 minutes a day, daily. I should be watching my diet. I should be keeping my home tidy. I should be performing my job well. I should be caring for my staff if I manage a staff team. In the world of where expectations are set very high, the list of all the things we should be doing is immense. And one of my friends once said to me, if you list out all the shoulds in your life, it's like trying to, trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. You know, it's overwhelming. It can feel like you're drowning. You know, all the things you should be doing. And then you add things to this list that you should be doing in the Christian life. And I'm just going to mention three. I should be reading my Bible deeply and regularly. I should be speaking to my friends and family about Jesus. I should be praying. An older, wiser Christian once observed that if you want to flood a Christian with guilt, uh, three words, well, once hyphened, Bible reading, evangelism, and prayer. Because as much as you're doing these things, uh, you can always be doing more. Uh, so today we are thinking about how we want to be a church that wrestles in prayer. And in preparation for this talk, I picked up this book. It's going to come up on the screen. It's called Taking Hold of God. It's a great book, really worth a read. And it goes through a number of important Christian thinkers and gives an overview of why they prayed and how they prayed. And the first chapter focuses on Martin Luther. Now, to be honest, I was already feeling a little bit tentative about speaking to you about prayer this morning because I feel a bit of guilt about my lack of prayer. And then I read this line, thank you, Martin Luther. He who does not do this, pray, should know that he is no Christian and does not belong in the kingdom of God. Ah, Great, thanks, Martin. Uh, my, my guilt level, it kind of just went through the roof. But the funny thing is, as much as I read this, um, it didn't really lead me to pray more. It kind of just led me to despair. And, you know, guilt and despair, it's not all bad. Guilt and despair are kind of indicators that maybe it's something that we need to work on. So if that's how you're feeling, that's all right. You're in the right place. We're talking about prayer this morning. But I do want to kind of write a script for us today that will help us pray. And the script will be, really be why we pray, because we do want to be a church that prays. At the moment, we're in a series which is called Encapsulate. It's a series that is trying to encapsulate all that we want to be as a church. It's not a series that is simply just stating who we are, but what we might be in the future. It's aspirational. And today, our aim is really to make progress in prayer. It's an essential topic in this series. Because if we want to be a church that is overflowing with thankfulness, if we want to be a church that is living by God's word, if we want to be a church that is holy and serving and growing, it requires God to be at work. And so prayer is essential. Because prayer, really, simply, is asking God to work and to fulfill his promises. Prayer is the means by which God does his work. So you know what? We may as well throw out all our godly aspirations. We may as well throw out, really, this whole sermon series if we're not relying on God to work. And so prayer is critical. But rather than simply urging us to pray because we need to, it's critical, uh, rather than urging us to pray even because it's commanded, which we could do, we're going to consider what Jesus Christ has achieved and hopefully, prayerfully, this will spur us on to pray. So on the outline, first point, pray because of what God has done. You know, what is something in your life that you've not stopped doing? 
or something that you've done continually. Now, I hear those phrases, not stop doing continually, and I start thinking of little obsessions that I might have. Uh, since the first day I tasted coffee, I never have stopped sipping lattes. It's true. Uh, since the day I discovered Netflix, I've continually watched the trending TV shows. Now, in a letter by Paul to Colossi, he writes, We have not stopped. We have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Now, Paul, he sounds a little obsessed with prayer. He's not stopped. He continually asks. And if you read a lot of Paul's letters to churches, there are lots of notes of continual and constant prayer. And then as you read his prayers, it becomes kind of clear what motivates his continual prayer. So if you did flick open to a Colossians 1, you can see this. Uh, verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Then jumping to verse 9. For this reason, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. The Paul's constant reason, his motivation for prayer, is the gospel. Verse 6, the gospel that is bearing fruit. The gospel, in a nutshell, is the huge news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. It's there in verse 5. It's the news that the hope is stored up for you in heaven, which means death does not have to be the final word. It's in verse 13. It means that you have been, verse 13, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son, whom God loves. And this news, it produces what you kind of see in verse 3 and 4, produces faith, the fruit of faith, and the fruit of love, and later, it's the fruit of good works. See, only the news about Jesus Christ, this powerful work, can produce this fruit, faith, hope, love. And so for this reason, Paul does not stop praying. He can see that the gospel is producing fruit, that God is at work, and so he prays. And again and again in the New Testament, uh, the pattern's clear. Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, first the gospel, then prayer. The foundation of Paul's prayer, the reason why he prays is the gospel. And I think the reason for this is because the gospel does the impossible. See, humans on their own, we have no hope in heaven. Uh, if, we, if we rely on just being good people, uh, it doesn't work out because in the end, no one is really totally good. Humans on their own uh, can't simply move from darkness into the kingdom of the sun because in a strange way, humans kind of like darkness. We, we kind of like to live how we want. And humans on their own can't generate faith and we can't generate love because we kind of would rather love ourselves and trust in ourselves. But the huge news about Jesus Christ changes everything because in Jesus Christ, God does the impossible. He offers real, true hope when Jesus is raised from the dead. He rescues us from the dominion of darkness as Jesus Christ suffers darkness on the cross for us. And he opens the eyes of our hearts so that we may have faith in him. See, in Jesus Christ, God does the impossible. And so, Paul prays. Because only God can do the impossible. Can you kind of see the logic? The gospel firmly teaches God is at work. That only through him can there be good gospel fruit. And so we pray. So, you know, try this. This, this, this is something you can try this week. You know, add an extra address to how you pray to God. Now, Heavenly Father, God of the gospel, 
please do the impossible. And then pray. That's our first one. Pray because of what God has done. Second, pray because of who you are. Pray because of who you are. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment, uh, this might not be too hard for some of you, that you have a child who does not want to talk to you. Uh, They've shut themselves in their room and you can't get a word out of them. Now imagine you kind of somehow get into their room. What would you say to your child? What would your demeanor be? Uh, Would you go in angry and talking sternly, commanding them to talk to you, like kind of the general of an army, talk, talk, talk? Or would you go in kindly and compassionately, urging them in love to talk to you because you are their mum or dad and you love them? Now sometimes I imagine, I think we imagine that God is a bit like the first option, like the general of an army, and he sternly tells us, pray and pray continually, you must talk to me, which he does kind of command us to do that. But what does God reveal to us about himself in the Bible? He is our father, a loving father. A father is so keen for us to come near to him that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come near to us. Ephesians 2.13, In Christ Jesus, those who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or in Ephesians 2.18, Through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Who are we? We are children of a loving Father who sent his Son so that we might come near to him and have access to him. Jesus Christ taught his disciples in a similar way when he asked, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give you a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You know, one of my children had a birthday last week. I reckon, you know, not talking myself up, pretty good gifts we gave him. I actually think I might be playing with a few of them when he goes to bed. They're good gifts. You know, I'm an imperfect father. Uh, and I can give okay gifts, how much greater our perfect Father in heaven longs to give us good gifts. So who are you? In Jesus Christ, you are a child of a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son so you might come near to Him and that He might give you good gifts. Now, if you're not speaking much to God right now, you know, let's just imagine you've locked yourself in a room. How might God approach you? What might the conversation be? I don't think he's going to beg you to talk to you, talk to him. He's he's not weak like that. But the gospel, I think, does give us a sense of what he might say to someone who's struggling to pray. I love you. I sent my son so that you might have access to me. I long to give you good gifts. Speak with me. Talk to me. Pray, pray because of who you are, a child of the loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son that you might draw near. Pray, pray because of where you are now. Now, I did skim through quite a few books this week on the subject of prayer. I also had a look at this book, God is Love by Gerald Bray. It's going to pop up on the screen. Has it popped up on the screen? It will pop up on the screen. It's a systematic theology. This means it's a book that goes through kind of different Christian teachings. I reckon if you want a book which does this kind of thing, this is a really good one, easy to read, simple, and just beautifully gospel-centered. But each section of this book goes through a different teaching or doctrine. For example, what does God teach about creation, sin, humanity, salvation? 
The topic of prayer falls under the section, The Christian Life. Now, up on the screen, there's a list of chapter headings from this section. Under which section do you think prayer falls under? Have a read of the list. I'm going to have a drink. You can take a guess. Which section does prayer fall under? Right, look in your answer. Three, two, one, here's your answer. Oh, and the next screen will show the answer. Yeah, thank you. There he goes. He connects prayer to being united in Christ. Now, I couldn't quite hear your answers. Uh, it's not what I expected, though. I didn't expect that this was where he would kind of land prayer. Our people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ are united to him. This is what the Bible teaches. It's kind of like you want to keep it really simple. Whatever happened to Jesus has happened for the believer. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the believer, united in Christ, also died to sin. Whatever happened to Jesus has happened for the believer. The Bible uses rich metaphors to teach this. Jesus Christ is the head of a body and his people are his members. Jesus Christ is the vine and his people are the branches. We are united to Jesus. So how does being united to Christ connect, connect to the topic of prayer? Well, this is what Gerald Bray writes. Uh, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer here, and which virtually every Christian knows by heart, is fundamentally a prayer for union with him. First of all, we are told to pray to God using the word, himself, the word Jesus himself used, Father. This did not come naturally to the Jews who regarded Jesus' use of such language as presumptuous, if not actually blasphemous. But not only did Jesus use the term himself, he taught his disciples to use it as well, thereby putting them in the same relationship to God that he had himself. Union with Christ means, this is pretty mind-blowing right now, just as the Father loves the Son, he loves you. And union with Christ means just as the Son calls God Father, we too, as God's children, can call God Father. See, prayer, Heavenly Father, is a beautiful expression of your union with Christ. But there's another aspect which I think is worth highlighting. Not only does union with Christ mean whatever happened to Jesus happened to us, but also where Jesus Christ is, we also are. Right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is in the throne room of God himself. The author of Hebrews, he goes to great length to show that Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest. He is before the Father in heaven, interceding and praying for his people. So as a little side note, uh, if you're feeling the weight of prayerlessness, know this, Jesus Christ is praying for you. He's praying for his people. In this light, the author of Hebrews exhorts us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As we pray, because of our union with Christ, we enter into the very throne room of God. God's throne is the place from where he rules, and he rules on a throne of grace. Now, I'm not sure how you imagine God's throne or what it would be like to approach it. I mean, if I was to approach God's throne, I imagine kind of being filled with terror or dread, maybe kind of slowly creeping anxiously, eyes down, coming forward. But here in Hebrews 4.16, we are to approach with confidence, boldness, because 
It's a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, a throne that will give us help in our time of need, a throne that pours out like a waterfall, undeserved kindness. Charles Spurgeon writes of this verse and of the one who rules on the throne. He is infinite in mercy and love, and he delights to bless his creatures. He is infinite in power and is therefore able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is infinite in wisdom and is therefore able to give us whatever is best for us in the best possible way. He is altogether unlimited in his nature and therefore we cannot exceed his power or his willingness to help us. Let our requests be large as they may. Brothers and sisters, united in Jesus Christ, approach the throne of grace. Remember where you are. You know, we are going to pray in just a moment. We are in 205 Willoughby Road. We're in a pretty full building. It's pretty great. But remember where you are, in the throne room of grace. You might be praying in your living room. You might be lying down on your bed, going for a walk in your suburb, sitting on a bus in a commute, in a little Bible study group, in your home office, on a cafe with a friend. Remember where you are. If you are in Christ, you are entering into the throne room of God, a place where he pours out blessings. Pray. Pray. Pray because of where you are. And last one, pray. Pray because of where you are heading. I wonder what type of person you are. Uh, my friend and I, we once sat down with someone uh, and to, to kind of work this out, you know, whether you're a live-in-the-moment kind of person or you're a live-in-the-future kind of person. Uh, so we were told, you know, we had to close our eyes and we had to kind of think, where's things, where, where did you start and where are you aiming to head? This is me. I'm very much goal-orientated, here to there. My friend, uh, he closed his eyes and he kind of did this. And right there we knew he was a live-in-the-moment kind of person. I <laughs> uh, See, if you live in the moment, you're kind of enjoying the adventures of life, you're spontaneous, you move from, from one thing to the next, and you just love the journey, not really caring as much about the goal. If you're kind of a bit more like me, you're probably a little more goal-orientated. You make plans, you set tasks. You know, the journey's okay, but really it's the joy of the goal when you achieve it, and that makes it all worthwhile. I think anyone in this room could lean either way. Uh, depending on your personality. But I think for anyone who is a Christian, living for the future is crucial because in God's goodness, he has revealed the goal of all history. At the end of this age, God will bring all people under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's the big goal. That's where you were heading. Actually, that is where all of history is heading. And so, not surprisingly, this goal often shapes Paul's prayer. In our second Bible reading today in 2 Thessalonians, Paul outlines what will happen at the end of time. He says, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction, verse 9, and those who are united to Christ will find relief and rest, verse 7, and they will be glorified, made perfect. See, put really simply, and this is very simple, uh, at the end of age, there will either be punishment or paradise. That's where all of humanity is heading. And so, with this in mind, Paul prays. Verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. He prays for this little church in Thessalonica that they will be found worthy on the day that Jesus Christ returns. 
And the pattern, it continues over and over again in Paul's prayers. His prayers are really very often future orientated with the goal of being pure and spotless with Jesus Christ in heaven. You know, if you're familiar with Colossians, you'd see it there again. He prays that they will grow in knowledge, they'll live a worthy life, that they'll be strengthened and endured. Why? So they might share in the future glorious inheritance. All right, 10 a.m., pray because of where you are heading. Pray because you know where all of history is heading. Let the future and the goal of all things shape the content of your prayers. Here's another thing to try this week. Before you pray, think about the day when Jesus Christ returns. You know, if that is the goal of all things, how might that shape your prayers for your family and your friends and for your work colleagues and the people that you bump into? You, know, you pray for a deep conviction of sin. You'd pray for a deep and lasting faith. You'd pray for a love of God's people. You'd pray for perseverance. You'd pray for hope. See, as you consider the future, the day of Jesus' return, your prayers are just filled with deep, significant, and internal content. Pray. Pray because you know where you're heading. We want to be a church that prays, don't we? I think we do. I think it would be a beautiful thing to see a church like this praying and everyone else knowing that this church prays. And we don't just want it, we need to be a church that prays if we want to be a church that is growing. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see people from Narrenburn, 10 a.m., gathering early at church to pray or gathering after church to pray. I'd love to kind of walk through the streets at a cafe and see little groups huddled after a coffee, praying regularly. I'd love to see our parish prayer nights, which is, you know, end of each term. Uh, bigger than our Sunday morning gatherings, kind of filling this whole room. I'd love to see us praying. But here's what I think. I take it the only way we'll grow in prayer, the only way we'll be known as a church that wrestles in prayer, is if we grow in love for Jesus Christ. Pray. Pray because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Pray because of who you are. You're a child of the loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son so that you might draw near. Pray because of where we are in the throne room of grace. And pray, pray because of where we are heading, the glorious return of Jesus. I'm going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, God of the Gospel, you can do the impossible. And we admit that we are often prayerless. Uh, we often kind of lock ourselves in a room and we don't talk to you. Uh, so please help us to know who we are, that you are our Heavenly Father who sent His Son so that we might draw near. Uh, please help us to be like little children, uh, coming to you, relying on you, speaking to you. Uh, please, God, teach us that your throne is not a throne of absolute sternness, but it is a throne of grace and you long to give us gifts. So God, please uh, teach us to pray and grow us in love for Jesus. Amen.